All right, let's open up to Galatians chapter 1. A little excited because I have to do in 2 Corinthians, I don't have a long book until Hebrews, so I'm like, but it never shortens the message. I'm sorry, it's really, I keep thinking, but this, the less there is, the more there is to look at closely, I guess. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, but all these next, these next few books are really just uh, a few chapters each. Galatians, six chapters, Ephesians, six chapters, Philippians, four chapters, Colossians, four chapters. Put it right on my sweater. Okay. I'll be there recording this. All right, let me try that. You guys are paying more attention to this than... Yeah, yeah. How's that? That's better? Well, the button-down shirt for nothing, Mark. I don't know why I even put it on. Right? That's the only reason why I wear button-down shirts, by the way, to church, because i got to clip it to the... i got to start wearing cardigans. Is that what you're wearing? You look very refined right now. It looks good. All right. Looks better than I do. You should come. You want, you know, why don't you just come up here? <laughs> um, uh, so Galatians, right? Uh, six chapters, 149 verses, a little over three, a little over three thousand words. The author is Paul, right there in Galatians 1:1. 1, 1. He attests to that. Paul, an apostle, um, approximately 58 A.D. Again, not a not a very late book. And you'll notice in verse 2 that it's addressed unto the churches of Galatia. So it's not written to one specific congregation. It's written to kind of the churches in a, in a given area. Uh, Galatia was a broad strip of country in Asia Minor, which is round about where Turkey is. And uh, if you read Acts chapter 16, uh, you find out Paul preached the gospel there when he was probably delayed by his illness. If you look at 4.13... Of Galatians, he talks about in 4:13. He says, uh, "How through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. So Paul was a sick man, and uh, maybe when he had a little bit of a delay in his travels, he preached there to, to these churches. And and chapter one, verse six, it seems like he established at least one church there. Church is there because he's writing two churches, and." In chapter 3, verse 1, you see what he really preached about. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, Jesus Christ didn't die in Galatia, but he's saying, I preached Christ crucified to you so much that you have no excuse for going back to the law. I mean, he was put right in front of you, his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, 4.14 You see how much they received him, he says, and my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So you take two things there. Number one, Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord, because it says right there that you received me as an angel, even as Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord, that appearance of God in the Old Testament. And number two, that the people that you speak to, you're the representative of God to them, Because Paul said, you received me like I was an appearance of God. And when we speak to people, we stand in Christ's stead. We read that last week in 2 Corinthians, right? They said David was like an angel of God. Why? Because David was giving them the words of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So every time you stand up and speak for God to that lost person, it's like you are standing in the stead of God. You are representing God. That's a little takeaway. 4.15, they clearly loved Paul. I mean, these people, these churches loved him. He says, where is the ble- then is the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Which is a little nugget that makes me think that Paul definitely had an eye problem. Because he says, hey, you know, you would have ripped out your eyes and given them to me because Paul probably had an eye problem, right? He says a little later, you see how large a letter I've written with my own hand. Um, but go to, if you look at 1.6 again, he says... I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Here's what's going on in these churches. These Judaizing teachers are coming down from Jerusalem probably. These Judaizing teachers are creeping in and they're teaching the necessity of circumcision. Right? I think that's funny too. The necessity of circumcision. Right? That you've got to keep the law if you want to keep your standing with God. So this great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith 
is getting mixed with works. And the Judaizers are teaching that believers are under grace, but they're still under the law, which is heresy, right? It's wrong, right? Yeah, you got saved by grace, but now you got to keep the law to keep your good standing with God. And it was such an urgent matter to Paul. Look at 6.11. In 6.11, it was such an urgent matter to Paul that he wrote the letter himself, even though he might have been sick and not seeing so well, he writes this letter himself. It weighed on him so heavily. 6.11, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. More evidence that Paul had an eye problem because he must have written in these big letters because he couldn't see very clearly and Paul didn't wait for somebody else. Sometimes you read the postscript of like Romans and it was written by somebody else, dictated by Paul. This one he says, I wrote this one myself. Paul was so burdened for them that he wrote it himself because, and, and the whole letter And that is a burden, right? To see somebody get washed in the blood, get saved by grace through faith, start going back to the stupidity of religion. It's got to break the preacher's heart. It's got to break the evangelist's heart to see somebody receive the grace of God and then start to go back to days and months and years and all this nonsense, right? So there's an unusual tone of severity in this letter. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. Number one, Paul begins this letter without a word of praise or thanksgiving. That's unusual. In most of his other letters, like Philippians 1, I thank God. Romans 1, I thank God. He's always thanking somebody. Thanks be to God. But here you don't see that salutation. Number two, he does not ask for prayer anywhere in this epistle. You say, why? Because these folks are not walking right. I'm not asking people that are backsliding for prayer. No offense, but I'm going to ask the person that I know is trying to walk with God to pray for me. These people are out of fellowship with God. They've gotten askew in their walk with God. Paul's not asking them to pray for him. He'll ask the Ephesians to pray for him, right? He'll ask maybe the Romans to pray for him, but he's not asking these guys to pray for them because they're out of the will of God. They're missing the point. Now look at Galatians 3.2. Here's a key verse. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Right? That's a great verse. He's saying, hey, how'd you get the Holy Spirit? By the law or by grace? By faith. And there's a great emphasis on faith in this book, which we'll talk about. So the message is, Christ delivered us from the law. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Christ delivered us from, uh, from all external forms. Some of you he saved from Judaism. Some of you he saved from atheism. Some of you he saved from Catholicism. Right? He saved you from all those external isms, Protestantism, Methodism. It's all an ism. And he brought us into this glorious liberty of a relationship with Christ. That's the keynote of the book. So Jesus Christ is portrayed as the deliverer. All right? Now, two books that you really should get that a lot of Christians don't want to get are Romans and Galatians. They kind of, they complement each other. Romans gives us the doctrine of justification by faith. Galatians gives us the defense of justification by faith. Romans gives us the teaching that you are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Galatians gives us the fact that you are kept by grace through faith plus nothing. Amen. Right? And there's a difference. Corinthians was a book of reproof. Galatians is a book of correction. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, Romans, reproof, Corinthians, correction, Galatians. Reproof is something about your behavior. It's something you're doing wrong. And the Corinthians were living this immoral lifestyle. So Paul reproved them. Galatians is a book of correction. It's about something they're teaching or believing wrong. That's the difference between reproof and correction, right? Reproof, your behavior is wrong. Correction, your teaching's wrong. Your beliefs are wrong. And that's what Galatians is about. That's why it's so important because Romans lays it out and Galatians holds it up. So if you really want to know the doctrine of the New Testament, I recommend Romans and Galatians. So let's dive into it a little bit. You see the breakdown. And this breakdown is going to help us break the book apart. Chapters 1 to 2, the authority of the gospel. 
chapters 3 to 4, the superiority of the gospel, and chapters 5 and 6, the liberty of the gospel. And that's what we're going to follow. There's a lot of things I could say about Galatians, but I'm going to try to use that spine, that through line, that main idea of the Holy Spirit to really guide what I leave out and what I speak about uh, tonight, Lord willing. So let's jump in with chapter 1. Let's just do some low-level flying here. And let's talk about the authority of the gospel. Why the gospel is so authoritative and so powerful. All right, let's look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 6, I'm sorry. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another Right? Being told that you've got to get circumcised is not good news. Okay? That's not good news. That you've got to keep the law, not good news. Though, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. I want you to see number one in those verses, Paul's complaint. Paul's complaint. You know what his question is? Why did you move? Why did you move? You were on the rock. You had the truth. You were free. Why did you move? Why did you go from power to perversion? From the gospel to the law again? Why are you going backwards? You know, folks, we only get moved away from the truth when we give that power over to the enemy and let ourselves get moved. We don't have to be moved. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, I shall not be moved. All you got to do is stand. You don't have to defend the truth. You just got to stand by the truth and stand for the truth. The truth is the truth. When I talked about the book of Revelation today, I didn't have to justify it. I just had to let the lion out of the cage. When I let that lion out of the cage, that lion roamed all over that room, and I saw him devouring. I saw that Holy Spirit chewing people up, knocking people over, bothering people. I saw one kid that I couldn't get, sh- he wouldn't shut up four years ago. I said, Chase, where are all your questions? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, yeah, I'm really, woo. I'm just what he's saying, right? And I'm just talking about the book. I wasn't preaching. I was just talking about the book of Revelation. But, you know, you and I don't have to move. Paul says, why did you move? Why did you move? Why did you move? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You moved away from the power to something perverted because you chose to move. Oh, he was so convincing. No, you chose to move. They had such good arguments. You chose to move. You chose to, I got an email from a guy that visited our church uh, a few years ago, and he was a good brother. He was trying to do the best he can. He was trying to start a church out in Pennsylvania, and he is in heresy now. He's gone full hyper-dispensationalist, and he's aggressive. He's on the attack mode, and he's, you know, all the mid-trib, mid-axe dispensationalist. Paul was the first one in the church. All that gas, all that nonsense, and I want to write him. He might be watching this. If he hears it, brother, I love you. I don't mean this in anything but honesty, but why did you move? Why did you move? You moved away from the soundness and the truth of the gospel, and you moved. That's what he's saying. That's Paul's complaint, number two, verses eight and nine. So we start with Paul's complaint, right? Yes, they're all going to be C. All right, and then we get to, uh, and then 1, 8, and 9 is Paul's caution. This is a great verse. You should learn these verses. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man, that includes me, and you preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul says, Any other gospel preached during this church age will bring the curse of God. Harold Camping had the curse of God upon him. Right? Those Jehovah's Witnesses have the curse of God upon them. The Mormons have the curse of God upon them. The Catholic Church has the curse of God upon it. They're preaching another gospel. I didn't say it. Our apostle said it. The apostle to the Gentiles in this age said, if you're not preaching salvation by grace through faith, you're accursed of God. I don't like that. That's not politically correct. I get it. But that's what the Bible says. You have God's frown, God's judgment, God's God's, God's disapproval on it. Now, why would he say any other gospel? Because there are other gospels in the Bible. There's at least four other gospels in the Bible. I'll give them to you just if you want to know them. Uh, gospel just means good news, right? So there's other good news in the Bible. There's four of them. First one, Galatians 3, 7, and 8. I'm not going to flip to these verses, but if you're jotting notes down, Galatians 3, 7, 8 is the gospel unto Abraham, right? 
He tells him there's a gospel unto Abraham. I'm not going to write this down. And it's about the promised seed. He tells them, in your seed, all the world's going to be blessed. That's a gospel. That was good news. Hey, if you had no hope of having kids and God said you're going to have a seed that's going to bless the whole world, that's good news. That was a gospel. The Bible calls it a gospel. Number two. All right, I'm going to write it. Galatians 3, the promised seed. That's a gospel. It's called the gospel. God used the word gospel, right? Hebrews 4. Um, this is to the, to the Jews in the wilderness. This is the, I think I got this right, the promised rest. When they're at Kadesh Barnea, Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 9, this is the gospel unto Israel in the wilderness. It's a promised rest. I'm going to put the enemies down. You're going to go into a land full of milk and honey. You're not going to wander anymore. God calls it a gospel. Then you get to uh, Mark 1, Matthew 4, and you get the promised king. Now there's a gospel unto Israel in the land. Now they're in the land. They're not in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea. Now they're in the land. They're in, you know, in Jerusalem. And the king shows up, Jesus Christ, and he promises them the king and the kingdom is here. Right? That's another gospel. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. Right? And then, um, Acts chapter 20 is the promised grace. This is Paul's gospel. This is a gospel that is directed to all the world. The gospel of the grace of God. The promised grace. You'll notice if you study closely, these two are very close. The one that Moses preached and Jesus preached are very close. We could talk about that another time. But the one that Paul preached is this one. He preached to all the world about the promised grace. And he called that gospel he preached my gospel. Not because it was his or he invented it, because that was the one that God committed to him for this age. That is the gospel we preach right now. And Paul says, if you're preaching any other gospel at this time, you're accursed. If you're preaching enduring to the end and you'll be saved, you're accursed. That's, the, that's a different gospel. That's not the gospel for this age. Even though Jesus preached it, it's not the gospel for this age. See, most heresy is truth in the wrong dispensation. Oh, I need to get saved by works. I need to keep up good works. Yeah, there was a time when you had to do that. It's just you're in the wrong dispensation. If you take the truth and put it in the wrong dispensation, you often get heresy. You get error. Paul's gospel is outlined in 1 Corinthians 15. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. That is the gospel God commanded to be preached in this age. We got it? We go stay on the street corner. Nobody's preaching. All right, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. That's not what we're preaching. Nobody's preaching. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That's not what we're preaching. We're preaching, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, now shall be saved. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's what we're preaching, because that's the gospel for this age. That has the smile of God on it in this age. You know how you know... I'm ready to take off right now. You know how you know that dispensations is the only way you can understand the Bible. In Revelation 14, there's an angel flying around in heaven preaching another gospel. And God doesn't smack him down. God sent him. He's preaching the everlasting gospel. He's preaching a different gospel. He's not accursed. He's in a different dispensation in the plan of God. He would be accursed if he stood up there and said, you know, Christ died for your sins. That's not the gospel then. It's a different gospel then. The gospel now is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If anybody else preaches, now, what does Galatians 1a say? If, if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, right? That Revelation 14 angel doesn't get a curse because he's preaching the gospel for that dispensation. But if today an angel showed up, like the angel moron, I mean Moroni, showed up, and told me there's some golden plates in Mineola, New York. Just dig them up and translate them, and you'll, get, you'll restore the church, Joseph Smith. 
You, if you knew your Bible, you would know that's a curse right from jump. You don't, I mean, how do you justify the Mormon church that claims to have gotten its gospel from an angel? All you need is Galatians 1.8. If you know Galatians 1.8, you don't have to talk another five minutes with those Mormons. You know right there. When they sit there in their white shirts and their red ties and the little clip on, you know, they just shave for the third time, but they're Elder Joe, and they sit there and they sit there and they say, you know, you know, the angel Moroni came to Joseph Smith in the wilderness and told him about the battle before the Lamanites and the Nephites or whatever those ites are. And they, you know, all you got to hear is, an angel told you what? About where? That's, that's a false gospel. You know it right there, right? When you fear about Muhammad bumping into Gabriel that he's claimed had like 600 wings and getting the, getting the Quran from him, you don't need to know another verse. You know, Galatians 1.8, man, that's an angel from heaven. That is not the Gabriel of the Bible. That's some false demon spirit that gave you that stuff. Right? It's always like that. So, number two, next one. Go back to, you were in chapter one, right? Verses uh, 11 to 16. This is Paul's confession. Now, Paul's going to confess here that his gospel is authoritative. It's approved of God. It's the valid gospel for this age, the official gospel for this age. Notice what he says in 11. He says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, I immediately conferred not with flesh and blood. You know what he's saying? I didn't get my gospel from man. I got it directly from Jesus Christ. That means there's an authority behind it. He goes, I got a revelation from Jesus Christ somewhere after Acts 9 or somewhere over there. I have some theories about where it might have happened, but somewhere Paul might have gotten caught up there. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians, and I think he was given some, I just feel that's when he was given some truth. You could argue with me about it, but somewhere in Paul's life, he was given some revelation of something special that, that is called that gospel. In verse 13, he says, you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Side note. Side note. How could Paul have been the first person in the church if he persecuted the church? I mean, forget the verse. I know, right, brother? The first, forget Romans 16, where Paul says there were people in Christ before me. I persecuted the church of God. If the church of God started with Paul, what's he doing? Beating himself up? doesn't make any sense. So this dear brother is like, well, I believe that the church started with Paul, mid, you know, mid-Acts, dispensationalist, and all that verbiage. How? How could Paul have been the first one in the church when he was persecuting the church? Unless you start to invent a second church and a second body, which the Bible says there's one body, Ephesians chapter 4. So you're in a little heresy there, son. Um, and he says right there, I didn't get this from religion. He says, you know who my religion helped? It helped me. Paul says, my religion profited me. You know all that religion you did before you got saved? You know who it helped? It helped you. It didn't help God. It helped you. It helped you soothe your conscience. It helped you maintain social standing. It helped you get along with the family. But it didn't help God. And Paul's saying, this gospel I got direct from Jesus Christ, and even though I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I didn't get it from my religion. 17 to 19. Here's Paul's conversion. I don't mean his salvation conversion. I just mean his change of thought, his change of belief, his change. Look what happens. 17. <clears throat> Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and bow with him 15 days. But other the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Paul, God sends him to Mount Sinai the base of Mount Sinai in Arabia, so he could understand the mystery of the body. He said, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go talk to the apostles. God took me out in the wilderness. He brought me to that spot where Moses got the law, and that's where God began to explain to me how this thing called the body mystery related to the rest of the Bible and the plan of God. And he says, right after that happened, three years later, after I get that all sorted out, where does he go? I go right to Jerusalem. Who does he go see? He goes see Peter. Why does he go see Peter? Because Peter was the one with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, Peter, we got to talk, Peter. Who's he go see also? James, the Lord's brother. Who's James, the Lord's brother? He looks like he's the pastor in Jerusalem. 
according to Acts 15, he was, a, he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. So he goes to see these two guys out to seek them out. Now, let's go to chapter 2. All right, now we're going to get a little more controversial. All right. I don't think it's controversial, but people make it controversial. We're still on the authority of the gospel now. 2-1. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Paul is talking about the council at Jerusalem, right? That happens in Acts chapter 15. You could read about this meeting in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, Paul goes and confers with the Jewish apostles, Peter, James, right? Barnabas is there. And he's going to set the record straight. They're trying to get themselves on the same page. Because they're all thinking that the gospel is still going to Jews. They're getting a hint that God's going to Gentiles. Paul's been going to Gentiles. He's been on a missionary journey already. So they go to Jerusalem, and it's a big council for them to kind of get the record straight. And... This is the conclusion that Peter makes in Acts 15. Listen, you could, you could flip there if you want. I'm going to read Acts 15, 11. This is the conclusion that Peter makes at the Council of Jerusalem. He says, quote, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. They're talking about how is God working in the Jews and Gentiles now? And the conclusion that Paul makes is, we Jews get saved the same way the Gentiles get saved. You know what that tells me? They get on the same page in Acts chapter 15. You see that? They get on the same page in Acts chapter 15. Peter says, you're right. It's all by grace. God's doing the same thing. He's not a respecter of persons. I saw it. I went into Cornelius. I saw this happen. I saw them get the Holy Ghost. Then Paul shows up, says, look what we're doing among the Gentiles. And Peter goes, you know what? You're right. We're getting saved the same way they're getting saved. Now go back to Galatians 2 and read verse 7 with me. With that in mind, with that context, watch this. Galatians 2, 7. He says, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. What does that mean? It just means Paul saying from this council, I'm going to keep going to the Gentiles and Peter's going to keep going to the Jews. It's not two different gospels. Because they got on the same page over here. They know they're preaching the same gospel, but they're saying, your audience is going to be the circumcision, and my audience is going to be the uncircumcision. So some of these hypers that want to talk about, well, there's two gospels, and there's the believing Israel, and the mystery, and the one body, and all this stuff that I hope you don't even understand what I'm talking about. I hope you don't get anything I'm saying, but in the so-called Christian world, there's knuckleheads that complicate the clear teaching of Scripture. They get on the same page at Acts 15, and they say, Paul, you keep going to the goy, we're going to keep hanging out with our own. That's what they're, that's all it is. Amen. It's not two different gospels and Peter's preaching the kingdom. They're not preaching the kingdom anymore after Acts 15. They're on the same page. Now look at 11 and 12. 11 and 12, Paul has to rebuke Peter, right? But when Peter was, was come to Antioch, Gentile church, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed for before that certain came from James... He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Paul rebukes Peter for putting Jewish works over the gospel. Hey, back at Jerusalem, you said we both get saved the same way, Peter. Now you're being partial to the Jews? Oh, no, you got to be rebuked, Peter. Why would he rebuke him if they were preaching two different gospels? He's rebuking him because... You're not doing what we agreed upon back there, Peter. It's supposed to be by grace. The Bible says God's not a respecter of persons now. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. You know why the gospel is authoritative and the law doesn't have any authority over Paul anymore or over any of you, praise the Lord? You know why the law doesn't have any hold over you? Because like Paul, you can say, I am crucified with Christ. You're dead to the law. That's why... The gospel has, is your authority, not the law, because you're dead to the law. So that's chapters 1 and 2. 
Let's do chapters three and four, all right? That's the superiority of the gospel, right? The fact that the life of faith is better than the law, isn't it? I did a little religion. I was an altar boy. I rang the bells and sprinkled the smoke and did all that stuff and poured the water on the priest's hands and did all that stuff. That wasn't fun. It was stupid. I laughed about it. I made fun of it. It was dumb. I mean, I can still chant it like the rest of you. It's, it's nonsense, right? To bow your head five times to a giant black cube in Saudi Arabia, we're supposed to be educated to develop people? And you've got to bow yourself five times towards a rock in the Middle East? And you're progressive and advanced? We don't do anything dumb like that. We don't do anything spooky like that. We're not praying to statues or buildings or even crosses, right? God's a spirit, right? So the superiority of the gospel, that the life of faith is better than the life of the law. I'll show you, 3-1. Look what he says. He gets pretty sharp with them. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. You know what he's saying there? You trading the gospel for the works of the law, it's like you're under a spell. It's like you've been hypnotized. It's like you're bewitched. I don't mean the funny sitcom from years ago. I mean, it's like somebody cast a spell on you that you think, spinning your beads and flipping your smoke and doing all that stuff is better than trusting what Jesus did on the cross? He's like, you're hypnotized by something. And religious people, aren't they like they're under a spell? You know? You're like, what are you doing? I don't know, I just do it. Uh, uh, yeah, amen. Uh, you, know? you know, they hold up a cookie to you, the body of Christ. Amen. Uh, they don't even know what they're doing. I was one of them. They don't even know what they're doing. I used to see people come down and we, they're a pious guy. They get down on their knees and they receive the Eucharist. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, and they would fall on the floor and they'd, they'd get a mop out and they'd clean the floor. I thought Jesus was holy. What are you worried about him dirty on the floor for? It's just like, what are you doing? It's all this stuff. It's crazy stuff, right? You watch these guys riding around Borough Park in the middle of July with black hats and black coats and prayer shawls. What are you doing? Why are you dressed up like that? Why are you doing that? Oh, because that's what we're supposed to do. Why do you do it? Because that's what everybody did before us. Why'd they do it? Because that's what, that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, it's like you're under a spell. It's like somebody's hypnotized you. That's the word. Bewitched you. Bewitched you. Hey. Hey, Arab friend. Listen. God didn't give the blessing to Ishmael. Oh, I'm going to kill you. Oh, what? That's just what God did. What's the matter? Why are you so angry? I don't know. You're under a spell. You're hypnotized. Something's bewitched you. Something's got you like hypnotized by some crazy spirit, some crazy thought, you know? Um, I remember talking to these Mormons one time and saying like, you know, what about this and what about that? And he just, guy got incensed at me. I said, what do you get so angry about? You know, you're, you're, you're writing say Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, not me. You're writing say that black people will curse, not me. You're writing say that, not mine. You're writing say that. Oh, I'm so, what are you so angry about? You know what? They're under a spell. They're just, uh, they're hypnotized. It's amazing out there, right? You see it right now. You see it, you know. Hey, why did Jesus, why do you think Jesus was born? I don't know. So we could give each other presents? No, they're under a spell. Really, folks, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. They are actually hypnotized for evil, right? They're just, and sometimes you say something and you see a glimpse of them actually thinking. Mm, and then pfft, it dissipates, but scary. Why would you trade freedom for slavery? That's what he's saying you're doing. Who hath bewitched you? You're trading freedom for slavery. You're putting yourself in bondage. Why are you doing that? Why would a believer trade his liberty in Christ for laws? Look at two and three. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the Lord, by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He's like, if you got the Spirit by faith, why wouldn't you get perfected by faith? If the flesh couldn't save you, why is the flesh going to keep you? And then he starts to point to some things. In verses 6 to 8, he reaches back to Abraham. Because these Judaizers would say they're children of Abraham, right? So he says, hey, 
How did Abraham get justified with God? What did we learn about Abraham? Abraham was justified by faith before the law. And you're children of Abraham. That means the law was superior. I mean, the gospel is, faith is superior to the law. Then in verse 13, he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Hallelujah. If Christ died for the curse of the law, why would you go back into bondage? Why would you go back into the cursed place? I mean, if you got a cure for cancer, would you give yourself cancer again? (laughs) And if God redeemed you from the curse of the law by putting his son upon a tree, why would you go back under the law and put yourself back under a curse? He says in 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster was the guy out there with the little stick that kind of whacked you in the butt to get you inside the schoolhouse. He's saying, once the schoolmaster gets you in the schoolhouse, you don't need the schoolmaster anymore. You've got the teacher. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got God. What do you need the schoolmaster for now? He's done. Once faith has come, you don't need a schoolmaster anymore. See, 26, for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. It's faith alone that gets you into Christ, not your race. Not your religion, not your works. He's hammering it. The gospel is superior to the law. Chapter 4 continues. Chapter 4, he says in verse 1, Now I say, all right, sounds like Sherlock Holmes. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are, present tense, sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Number, I guess the next thing here is, it's better to be a son than to be a servant. He says, when you were under the law, you were a servant to the law, in bondage to the law. Christ redeemed you from that, made you a son. Why would you go backwards? You see how ridiculous it makes religion seem? Galatians is a great book. I mean, you just want to go through Galatians. you got that person that's hung up on self-righteousness and religion. Just go through Galatians with them. It's just like a million cannons, pow, 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 just blowing holes in it. You say, why would you go back? Look at 9 to 11. He says, but now, after that ye have known God, hallelujah, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire to be in bondage? You know all that stuff they do? Right? Their stations of the cross, their, their five pillars, their eightfold path, their rosary beads. They want to make you feel like you're so inferior to them. They're so high and mighty. You know what God says? That stuff is stupid. He says it's weak and beggarly. He says you guys are like paupers trying to figure stuff out, digging through the dirt and the garbage. You know what it is? Faith. <laughs> Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Right? Faith is what God is pleased with. Faith is impressive. It's easy to follow when it's like, well, stand here and say that and do this. It's much more impressive to God when you walk by faith and not by sight. Well, I go to, you know, I go to Mass twice a day. Fantastic. Weak and beggarly. Well, I say the rosary while I go to Mass. Weak and beggarly. Well, I, you know, I, I give my alms to the poor and I pray five times towards the East. Weak and beggarly. That's what God said. It's pathetic. It's weak. It's not strong in faith. You're weak in faith. You have no faith, he's saying. Right? It's a strong book. Look what he says in 10. Ye observe days and months and times and years. You know what Paul says? I'm afraid of you. He says, you're freaking me out. You found out about Christ nailing the law to the cross, and now you're saying, well, where's the advent wreath? God says, you're freaking me out. That's scary stuff. Right? You're worried about Palm Sunday and Good Friday 
when Jesus Christ died so you could be with him every single day? Really? He says, I'm afraid of you. You observe days and months and years? Really? He says, you're scaring me, guys. You're scaring me. You said you knew the gospel. You said you got saved by grace through faith. And now you're digging through the ash pile, trying to spin beads? I'm scared. You're freaking me out. That's what Paul's saying. You're freaking me out. I mean, why would a son go back to the law he was under as a servant? Do I check a calendar to see when I can have fellowship with my father? Well, it's, you know, it's the third moon since the second Sunday of standard time, so let me open up this book and see what my father's going to say to me that I will read on Sunday morning. It's ridiculous, right? God's a spirit. You can speak to him whenever you want. He's your father. It's a relationship, right? <laughs> you know, Theo, only on a certain time can you speak to your dad, Mark. You know, make sure you only come at a certain time. Make sure you come with a turtle dove, right? It's just, it's absurd. Paul says, you're scaring me. Am I being too hard about this? I try to get across the spirit of what Galatians is saying, that this is ridiculous. Religion is ridiculous if you have a relationship with God. It's ridiculous, absurd. 22, then he jumps down to Isaac and Ishmael. He says, um, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, um, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Here's another thing that's better. He compares Isaac and Ishmael. He says, isn't Isaac superior to Ishmael? The child of promise was Isaac. He got the blessing, not Ishmael, right? Just nod your head, right? I'm not saying anything that's wrong, right? That's what he's pointing to. Then he says in 24, he says, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, that's the law, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. That was Ishmael's mother. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. It's spiritual. He's saying, isn't Jerusalem the city of peace, superior to Sinai, which means hatred and enmity? Do you want to be under hatred and enmity with God, which is what the law worked? Or do you want to be of Jerusalem above, which is the city of peace above, that heavenly Mount Zion, which is a city of peace with God by grace, being justified by faith? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? Verse 30. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then the brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. The Bible says, throw off the law and walk at liberty. Which brings us to chapters 5 and 6, quickly. The liberty of the gospel. The liberty, the freedom you have. Now in Galatians 2, verses 5 and 16, it mentions this expression. The truth of the gospel. The Bible talks about the hope of the gospel, but Galatians talks about the truth of the gospel. In John 8, Jesus says, The truth shall make you free. So the truth of the gospel is the fact that the gospel makes you free. That's the truth of the gospel. It makes you free. And in 5 1, he says, Stand fast in the, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse 7, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you not obey the truth? You can't run if you're entangled. You know what you got to be able to run? Free. If I tie a rope around your leg, you can't run so well. And if you're trying to observe days and months and years, it's hard to have a real good run with God when you're cumbered about, captured, complicated, and caught by all these rules and regulations. The Bible says, walk at liberty. Walk at liberty. Verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. That is not about individuals losing their salvation. That's as a group, you Gentiles, you guys who knew the truth, you're stepping away from the doctrine that made you free and putting yourself back into bondage as a group. He says, ye, all of you, are fallen from grace. It's not like Josh decided to keep the Sabbath and he's going to lose his salvation. He's saying, you churches that are letting these Judaizers get, their, get your ear 
You're falling from grace. You're losing your standing. You're losing that liberty that God gave you. Verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, right? It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, but faith which worketh by love. He says, faith is what powers your walk, right? Faith is the engine that moves you along to God. You know what the fuel of the gasoline is for faith? It's love. God so loved the world. It's love that powers your faith, not law. Keeping the commandments doesn't power your walk. It freezes you up. It locks you up. It makes you afraid of God. It makes you guilty before God. It's the love of God that's shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, by faith. That's what lets you run to Him and walk with Him and be free to find Him and be found of Him. He says, faith works by love. Relationship, not religion, powers your walk. 16. 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the Spirit that gives you victory. It's the Spirit that will bear fruit for God, not the law. You could circumcise yourself till the cows come home. It's not going to make God any more impressed. You can keep all the Sabbath days. Hey, the Apostle Paul went back under the law, purified himself, and he lost his liberty. He was arrested and a prisoner for the rest of his life. The man that wrote Galatians did that. It always blows my mind. But Paul's an example. When you and I put yourself back under religious bondage, you lose your liberty. God said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Oh, if we could get that. If we could get the liberty that we have in Christ, that there's nothing between us and Him, nothing to keep, nothing to maintain, nothing to observe, just a relationship to cultivate, right? We got the little one back there. We got Theo back there, right? There's nothing he has to do to maintain his sonship with his father. He just has a relationship with his father now that he's supposed to grow into and develop and cultivate and get to know his father better and learn to walk with his father. That's what God is saying I want with you. There's nothing for you to bring to me or do for me or appease me with or maintain or observe. I'm your son now. You're my father. Let's have a relationship now. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I think that's a beautiful thing. From somebody that rang the bells and spun the beads, that's a beautiful thing. Right? If you came out of any religious background, it's a beautiful thing. I don't want to go back to bondage. I don't want to go back to slavery. I don't want to go back to you know, confession on Saturday night so I can receive on Sunday. I don't want to go back to that stuff. It's weak and beggarly. It's, it's vomit to God. It's refuse. It's dung, Paul said. But how does a believer walk in the Spirit? so we can walk in victory and bear fruit. Well, get Galatians 3 in one hand. i got just a few stops left. Galatians 3 in one hand and Genesis 12 in the other hand. Let's go to Genesis 12 first. <clears throat> Genesis 12, 3. Let's look at verse 1. Who's speaking in verse 1? The Lord said, right? And here's what the Lord said in Genesis 12, 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You got that? Who said that? Okay, cool. Galatians 3. Paul's going to quote it in Galatians 3. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Who's speaking in Galatians 3.8? The Scripture. In Genesis 12, God is speaking. In Galatians 3, the Scripture is speaking. That would mean the Scripture is God speaking. You see that? That's really important to get. You say, how do I walk in victory? You need the Scripture. Because the Scripture is alive. That says right there that that Scripture could foresee. What kind of book sees the future? This book, right, brother? This book sees the future. What kind of book speaks when God speaks? That book is God in words. You say, how do I walk in the Spirit? How do I get filled in the Spirit? You got to get filled up on His words. That's how you bear fruit. Galatians 5, 22, he says, 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There is nine-fold fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, there's 18 of them. 666. But the fruit of the Spirit is ninefold. How do we get that ninefold fruit of the Spirit? You need the right book. You need the right book. It's not just any book. Not just any book's going to make the best fruit, right? Holy Bible. Nine letters, right? Nine's the fruit of the Spirit. King James. Nine letters. Sixteen eleven. One plus six plus one plus one. Nine. You know how many times this expression, be fruitful, shows up in a King James Bible? Nine times. In a King James Bible, nine times. You want to bear the right fruit for God? You've got to have the right book. The Spirit works through that King James Bible. Oh, you can get saved out of another version. I got it. You can get the fundamentals. You can grow a little bit. But you want God's best? You've got to get it out of the book that God says is the one that my smile's upon. The one that bears the most fruit. The one that's fruitful. Galatians 5.24 And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. That is a doctrinal statement about your co-crucifixion. That's what freed you. That's what gave you liberty. The fact that your flesh is dead as far as Christ is concerned. Doesn't mean because you're saved you stop sinning. It means when Christ saved you, he put you on the cross in Christ, and he crucified your flesh, so now you can be free because your flesh is dead. So, chapter 6. We're going to run through 6. Right? If you are justified by faith, you are a free man. Amen? Amen. Let me say that again. And amen like you believe it. If you're justified by faith, you are a free man. Okay. You have liberty to have a new life. And in chapter 6, which is the number of man, the Lord talks about your new life. He gives you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things about your new life. I'm just going to read some of them. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But in verses 6, 1 to 6, right? He says, number one, you've got a new life that has a new brotherhood. You're a part of a brotherhood now. Galatians 6, 1 to 6. You had no family under the law. You're a convict. You're a guilty criminal roaming around God's prison called earth. Now you're in a family because of this new life. Galatians 6, 7 to 9. He says, now you've got a new life of brotherhood. You've got a new life of husbandry. You can cultivate things for God now. You can grow things for God now. You got the seed of the Word of God. You could bear some fruit now. And you know what? You're going to reap what you sow. Verse 7 is a great verse. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he reap. That is a law in the Bible. The law of sowing and reaping. You put apple seeds in the ground, you get apple trees that you're going to reap. You put sin in your life, you're going to get corruption in your life. You put the spirit in your life, you're going to get good things in your life. You can't beat it. You'll never beat it. Nobody that puts apple seeds in the ground expects to grow squirrels. If you think you're going to go squirrels, i got a nice room for you. It's got white walls. They're very padded. And they give you a jacket that holds your arms up for you. Right? That's crazy. Right? But God says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to beat God. You're not going to beat God. you got a new life. Verse 10. you got a new life of blessing that previously was under a curse. He says... As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Now you can bless people before you were guilty, before you were cursed. That guy who's on death row, what kind of a blessing is he? He's trapped. He's locked away. He's just counting his days, waiting for his last meal. You now can be a blessing to the world and do good because you're free. How about number four, 11 to 13? You now have a new life. Of sacrifice. See 11. He says uh, 13. 
Uh, yeah, sorry, 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now that you know Christ, you can lay something down. You could finally do something that's acceptable to God. Nobody got offended when you went to church for Palm Sunday, Easter, and Christmas. Nobody cared. Nobody cares if you say, I went to temple this week. Nobody cares if you say, well, I got I to gotta get to Mass for this Christmas Eve. Nobody cares about that. But you talk about being saved by grace through faith, Amen. and you suffer the offense of the cross. Amen. And now God says, now you can sacrifice and experience the sacrifice of my son and actually live a life of sacrifice when before there was no sacrifice. You walked in on your Sunday best. You waited until you had the, the Eucharist because if you didn't get the Eucharist, it didn't count. So you had the Eucharist, and then you bolted. Then you dipped, right? That's what a good Catholic did, right? You stayed that 45 minutes. You didn't wait for the final comments. You ate your cookie, and then you sat down for a little while. You moved to the back, and then you dipped, and you wanted to get out of the parking lot before everybody else mobbed the parking lot, right? Amen, brother. That's right. <laughs> right? All the ex-Catholics. All the ex-Catholics are like, yeah, right. And you went to Saturday evening mass because you want to go to the beach on Sunday, right? That's how you did it, right? That was, that was, the, way, that was the way of the world. There was no sacrifice there. You were a good boy. You were a good girl. Now, you got to bear some reproach and actually be called unto the fellowship of his sufferings. That's some sacrifice. You didn't have that before. Verse 14 to 15. It's a life, it's a new life of glory. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You had a life before under the law that made you guilty. It just made you ashamed. Now you have a life that can bring glory and honor from the Savior. That's a new life. That's liberty, man. You are free indeed. 6, 16. You have a life, a new life of peace. Peace. He says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them. Before the law, the law worked wrath. The law said, no peace. <laughs> You're wicked. You're guilty. I'm angry at you. Right? They didn't want to go near Mount Sinai. It said, Moses said, I'm afraid. It exceedingly quakes that mountain. I don't want to get close. Now, there's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a new life. And number seven, you have a new life of fellowship. A new life of fellowship. He says, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Right? The law said, stay back. The law said, stay away. The cross says, come on in. You have fellowship now. So two very quick ideas, and I'll be done. Go back to Galatians 1. Two very quick ideas from the book of Galatians. Two big ideas. All right? I'm going to erase this. I'll erase the top anyway. Number one, what is good about the book of Galatians? Number one, Galatians is the antidote for every ism. You're dealing with a religious person? The book of Galatians. It's the antidote for Judaism, Romanism, Catholicism, ritualism, Romanism, atheism. Galatians is the antidote of all the external isms. You want to blow them apart? Galatians is the book that shreds them shreds them. I mean, we just scratched the surface and we shredded it. You just dig a little deeper, you just shred religion to pieces. Shred formalism to pieces. Shred ritualism to pieces through the book of Galatians. And number two, it's the admonition. That's to maybe the lost people, to the people on the outside. It's the antidote to ritualism and it's the admonition to always cultivate your relationship. To not worry about the outward and always focus on the inward life. You want to see it? Look at it real quick, 116. He says, to reveal his son in me. See the focus on the inner life, the inward life? Look at 220, 220. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In me. Not on me or outward, but in me. How about 4 6? 4 6. And because ye are sons, 
God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In your heart, not in your flesh, in your heart. And then finally, 419. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So Galatians is the antidote for the outward things and the admonition to focus on the inward things. When you got saved, you were born again, and now he's trying to form Christ in you. He's trying to conform you to Christ and see that, that, that new man birthed and grown in you, in you, not on you, nothing in your flesh, but in your heart, in your spirit, in you. And let's never forget that. Let's never get about the length of the dress, though it shouldn't be short, the length of the hair, though, you know, please don't look like a bum, but that's not where God's target is. God's target is in you. That wasn't directed at you, Aaron. Don't worry. Right? right? In you. In you. That's where he's always aiming. That's every good preaching, every good message should have one target in its mind, the heart. The heart. If God gets your heart, he gets everything else. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you tonight.